Andrew Womack Ministries presents this session from the 2013 New York City, New York Gospel Truth Rally. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. You know, I know that there are many of you who realize that there's something more than what you've been experiencing. When you read the Bible and then you look at your life, they don't seem to match up exactly. And the average Christian is frustrated about how do I begin to start seeing the power of God manifest in my life. And I'm telling you, there's a lot of things that are involved, but the, I believe the most important thing, the single most important thing for change in your life is just the Word of God. And most people do not spend a tremendous amount of time in the Word of God. And then many people who are studying the Word are studying it with a bias and a bent that came from religion that causes them to see it in the wrong light. Many people use the Bible like a club to tell people their sin and to point out all of the things that are wrong. But I tell you, the gospel changed everything. We have a new covenant that's established upon better promises than the old covenant. And most Christians don't really know the total liberty and all of the good things that Jesus brought to us. If we could understand how good God is, I guarantee you, you couldn't find a stadium big enough to put all of the people because people would be so excited about God. I just got through in Toronto last night and I forgot how many people we had. It was around 1,500 or something like that. But Justin, I think his name is Justin Bieber, was there the same night and he drew, I don't even know, but it was probably 50,000 people. And on the news, we saw him coming down with big old wings on like an angel. And we saw girls just falling on the floor. And I, you know, it's not jealousy on my part. I don't want to do any of that. But I was thinking about God. Wouldn't it be wonderful to see that many people turn out for the Word of God instead of for something like that? So I want to share some things with you tonight, just real simple things, but things that are radically different than what most of us have heard in religion. Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, verse 13, he says, traditions and doctrines of men make the word of God of none effect. And you know, this is what's happened in a large segment of the body of Christ. We have come up with our own traditions, our own doctrines, and it has just gutted the word of its real power. And so you've got to challenge these false concepts and build a firm foundation before you can really see the Word of God work in your life. And I want to share just some simple things with you tonight that could change your whole perspective on God and how you relate to God and how He relates to you. Let's look in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And there's just a tremendous amount of material here. I could actually minister on this chapter for day after day after day. This verse 17, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 is one of the main verses that the Lord used to change my life. And I'm going to try and skip over that tonight. It's hard to do because this is one of the major uh, impacts that God made on my life. I have a book out there entitled Spirit, Soul, and Body. If you don't have that, you ought to get it. It would change your life. It would make a big, big difference. It's just like when I got that revelation, it's like somebody unlocked my brain. And all of a sudden, I begin to understand. It is a major key. So in verse 17, it says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. 
Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And if you just give a little thought to this, it'd be obvious to you that this isn't talking about your body being new. You know, last night we saw, we saw I don't know, three, 400 people receive the baptism. We saw dozens that were born again. And yet after they prayed, if they were a woman before they prayed, they were still a woman after they prayed. If they were a man, they were still a man. If they were tall, they were still tall. If they were short, they were still short. It didn't change them. This isn't talking about your physical body and it's not talking about your mind either because if you're stupid before you get saved, you'll still be stupid after you get saved until you renew your mind. Did you know your body and your soul do not just instantly change when you get born again? And some people struggle with the Bible because they say, well, the Bible says that if I'm in Christ, which I know I'm in Christ and yet I'm not changed and they just think, well... I, the Bible is so hard to understand. It's not talking about your body. It's not talking about your soul, but there's a third part of you, the spirit. And in the spirit, you are a completely brand new person. One translation of this verse says, you are a new species of being that never existed before. And yet the average person, see, goes and looks in the mirror and they think, so I'm new and they see zits, and they see gray hairs, and just ugly, and they think, man, this isn't what I was believing for. And then they search their mind and their emotions, and if they can't see total transformation, they just get discouraged, like, well, why aren't things working for me? But the Bible says you're changed. It's in your spirit that you're changed, and this is what I'm not going to preach on tonight. I nearly got into preaching on it, but I refrained myself. You need to get those, that teaching. I tell you, that would change your life. In the next verse, verse 18, it says, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. You know, some of these words are kind of like religious words, and most of us don't use these words often enough to really think about it. But the word reconcile literally means to bring into harmony or to uh, agree, make it agree. Like, for instance, when you reconcile your bank statements, you get a statement from the bank, and then you put that with your checkbook, and you reconcile them. You work on it until they agree. That's what the word reconcile means. And it means to make friendly or to bring into harmony. When you play a guitar, you reconcile those strings to each other so that instead of making a bad sound, they make uh, a good sound because you've uh, tuned them to each other. This is what it's talking about, that God, it says, hath. That means it's already been done, reconciled us unto himself. This is not something that is going to happen. It is something that has already happened. And this is one of the major mistakes or one of the major misconceptions that people have about God. Religion basically is saying you can be reconciled to God. But it's dependent upon you doing this and this and this. You have to quit doing these things. You have to quit living in sin. You have to become holy. And basically they preach that God it becomes a friend of yours and reconciles himself to you dependent upon your performance. But this is saying that all things are of God who hath reconciled us unto himself. 
How did God reconcile us unto himself? And notice that this was written 2,000 years ago before you and I existed. God didn't wait and look at you and see something in you that made you so worthy that he became your friend and brought you into harmony with him. That's not That happened 2,000 years ago through Jesus before you and I existed, and yet we were reconciled to God before we were ever born. How is it that God made us friendly? Again, see, this is contrary to most of our tradition. Most of our tradition says that if you will become good, then God will be good towards you. If you're bad, God is bad towards you. He's angry towards you. And that is not the truth. That is not what the gospel is preaching. This says that he hath already reconciled us unto God. And then verse 19 tells us how it happened. It says, in the King James, it says to wit, which means just to know or that is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. God was in Christ reconciling the world. The world was reconciled to God in Christ 2,000 years ago. God is not waiting on you to do something to reconcile you to himself. God reconciled you to himself before you were ever born, 2,000 years ago through Jesus. It was all based on what Jesus did and not on what you have done. God is not angry with the world. God is not mad at you. I, I know that most of you have heard people say that God is angry with America and if America doesn't repent that the wrath of God is coming, they will attribute hurricanes, earthquakes, uh, depression, uh, recession, all kinds of things as this is the judgment of God. God is going to judge America. I've heard people say before that if God doesn't judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. And the point that they're making is that America has become as ungodly as Sodom and Gomorrah. And I won't argue that point. We are fast approaching there. But what I would say is that if God does judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Jesus because he placed his wrath for our sins upon Jesus 2,000 years ago. And he paid for our sins totally. You know, I, right now, I could go a dozen different directions. One of the things that I love to do is just try and amplify the huge price that Jesus paid for our sins. He didn't pay just a token sacrifice. He didn't just take a tiny bit of sin and then you have to make up the difference. Jesus paid more than our sins demanded. Jesus paid more than the sins of the entire world demanded. Sin has been atoned for. God is not holding people's sins against them. And I know some of you right now are thinking, heresy. <laughs> Look at this again in verse 19, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. And how did he reconcile us? What brought us into uh, harmony with God. What made us friendly with God again? It says he was not imputing their trespasses unto them. What does that mean? Again, impute is a word that we don't use a whole bunch. But you know, there, a parallel to this is that when you use a credit card and you go and buy something and you give them a credit card, did you know you didn't pay for that? 
Some of you think, oh, yes, I did. Well, then just don't pay your credit card bill when it comes due and tell them, oh, I paid for it at the store and see how that flies. You haven't paid for it. When you give a person your credit card, what you are doing, that magnetic strip on it has your information, your account number and things like this, and the purchase is imputed unto you. That is a modern day example of what imputation is talking about. It's an accounting term. And when it says that God wasn't imputing their trespasses unto them, this isn't saying that God just changed all of a sudden and said, well, I'm not going to call anything sin anymore. We're just forgetting sin. No, that's not what he did. He imputed your sin and my sin to Jesus. He put it on his account and it's not on your account. He doesn't even record sin against you. This would be like me. This would be like if you were going to buy something and you were getting ready to hand them your credit card and I just step in and I said, here, put it on my card. And if I gave them my information, then your transaction would get credited to me and I would have to pay your bill. That's what Jesus did. Jesus stepped in and paid your bill. Hallelujah. And he didn't pay just a portion of it and then you've got to pay the rest. He paid more than enough. It would be like if you were buying something for $100 and Jesus just steps in and says, here, uh, here's a million dollars. Will this cover it? More than covers it. What Jesus paid for our sins more than satisfied the wrath of God. It so satisfied it that there isn't any wrath left in God for those who will accept what Jesus did. Your sins have been paid for. God is not angry at you. He's not angry at America. He's not even in a bad mood. God loves us. And I know, again, that there are people who have been taught just the opposite and say, but wait a minute, sin's got to be judged. Sin's got to be judged. You know, the church that I was raised in, that was one of their favorite phrases. They would say, sin's got to be judged. And they would teach on like the tithe. And they would say, if you don't pay your tithes, God's going to curse you. And they would quote Malachi chapter 3, verse 8 through 10. And some of you are thinking, well, that's what it says. You're cursed with the curse. But that's an Old Testament scripture. The New Testament says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Jesus paid that curse. If you don't tithe today, you are not cursed by God. You're stupid, but you, you aren't cursed. It's like God has given you some of this seed. Some of it you're supposed to eat. Some of it's for you. Some of it is so that you can sow and have something grow up so that you'll have something to eat tomorrow. If you, don't, if you just were to eat it all, God's not mad at you. He placed his anger and his wrath and his curse on Jesus and he's not going to punish you, but you're just stupid if you eat all of your seed and don't plant some. You're going to get hungry and then you're going to come running and ask for welfare and ask somebody else to help you. But the point I'm making is God loves you, stupid. He's not mad at you. Amen. I hope y'all uh, understand. I'm not mad at anybody. I'm just 
blunt. I'm trying to get my point across. But uh, God has paid for all this and he's not imputing your sins unto you. He imputed them unto Jesus. And he's not angry at people today because Jesus paid for our sins. And this is how he made us friendly with him. It's not, some people think, well, when you preach grace, you're just saying that God, in a sense, changed the rules and says, you know, it's no longer, uh, sin is no longer a problem to me. I'm not going to hold people's sins against them. I'm just going to quit uh, judging sin. It's like homosexuality, adultery, lying, stealing, anything. It's okay. He just changed the rules. That's not what happened. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying sin is terrible. Sin is bad. Sin will cause death in you. Sin is wrong, wrong, wrong. But what I'm saying is God didn't just turn a, a blind eye to it or ignore it. He paid for your sin in the Son, in His own Son. He punished His own sin, His own Son for our sins. And God isn't just looking the other way. He has paid for our sins and for him to make you pay for your sins is double jeopardy. Jesus has already paid for it. Now, I'm talking to people who accept that payment. But if a person rejects that payment, some people could take what I'm saying right here and say, so you just believe that everybody's already saved, that God's, you know, there's nothing wrong with any of this sin. I'm saying... Jesus paid for our sins. And here's another scripture that backs this up. It's 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. It says that he is the propitiation. That means the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He was talking to Christians and he says, but Jesus didn't only die for Christians. He died for the sins of the whole world the sins of everybody, even the people that don't believe in God have been paid for. Jesus took their sins into his own body on the tree and he died for the sins of the entire world. The sins of the entire world have been paid for, but you have to accept that payment. You have to receive it. You know, I've got a great teaching on the balance between grace and faith. And I know that that's not a real catchy title, but it really would address what I'm talking about right here. Grace is what God has done. By grace, he's paid for the sins of the whole world, but it says you're saved by grace through faith. It's not just grace alone. If grace alone saved people, everybody would be saved. Everybody would be in harmony with God because God's grace is the same towards the saint and the sinner. And the word grace means unearned, unmerited, undeserved favor. If you start saying, no, God would never extend grace towards somebody who's living in sin, well, then you've just changed the meaning of grace. If it's grace, it doesn't have anything to do with your holiness or your goodness. God, by grace, has brought salvation to all men. Second uh, chapter of Titus, verse 11 says, The grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared unto all men. God's grace is the same towards everybody. He paid for the sins of Hitler, just the same as he paid for my sins, your sins, anybody's sins. Everybody's sins were paid for. But as far as we know, Hitler didn't receive it. He didn't put faith in what God did. 
And so today, he is standing before a holy God based on what he did, and he's having to stand judgment for his own sins. But they were paid for. He just didn't accept it. It would be like you trying to buy something, and I come up and I put my card down, and you say, no, I don't want your card. I'm going to pay for this. You can reject my payment, but man, the payment was made. Jesus has already paid for the sins of the whole world. There's no reason that you ought to have to suffer for them too. But our sins have been paid for, and that's what this is saying. He is not imputing our sins unto us. And look at this, and it says, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. The church is supposed to be telling people that even though you have sinned, and come short of the glory of God. And even though we all deserve the judgment of God, Jesus paid what I owed. Jesus paid for my sins. And now God is pleased with me and accepts me on the basis of what Jesus did for me and not what I do for Jesus. Man, that's awesome. And brothers and sisters, as a whole, the church hasn't been preaching this message. The church has been preaching that if you sin, God is going to punish you. This is why your children are sick. This is why children are born with diseases. This is what they were telling Ashley and Carly, that, you know, it was God's judgment or punishment. Or sometimes they'll put a different twist on it and say, God loves you so much that he's killing your child. We've got a brand new DVD out of a little boy who was raised from, well, he wasn't, uh, well, on that DVD, there is a boy that was raised from the dead in South Africa, but the one I was thinking of is in uh, Ireland, and this boy had stage four cancer, 17 months old, and basically was given up to die, and his parents believed, and he got healed, and we got a great testimony on there, but he worked for a Christian... Amen. Isn't that awesome? But he worked for a Christian organization. And when he got hold of the teaching on God wants you well and started believing for his son to be healed, the uh, people started saying, no, God is the one that made your son sick. This is God's will. God loves you so much. He saw you so strong that he thought you could handle this and he would get glory by killing your son. And when he stood and said, no, it's God's will for my son to be healed, that Christian organization kicked him out, banned him, and has just totally rejected this guy. And uh, his son was healed. If his son would have died, they would have accepted him. But because they believed in healing and his son got miraculously healed, they kicked him out and didn't want anything to do with him. That's how weird our church realm has gotten today. You know, in the Bible, in a, in uh, Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, it says, In the last days they will call evil good and good evil. And this is what we see. The church as a whole, if you start preaching that God wants people well, they're going to say, that's of the devil. But if somebody gets sick, they say, oh, this is of God. Acts chapter 10, verse 38 says, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with power and with the Holy Ghost who went about doing good, healing all that were oppressed of the devil, not oppressed of God. They were oppressed of the devil. Sickness is of the devil. And for 
religion to turn it around and say, oh, God has blessed me with this cancer, with this paralysis, with these things. This is how God got my attention. You're calling evil good and good evil, and it's wrong. And for religion to come along and, and preach, and they will quote scriptures like Isaiah chapter 59 where it says God's hand isn't short or his arm, I mean his, uh, I messed that up. How's that go? <laughs> I'll turn over here and read it to you. I know where it is. Isaiah chapter 59. I'm getting there. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither is ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. And people will quote that and say, God is angry, God is upset, the wrath of God is on you because of your sin. But what they're missing is that God placed all of this wrath that our sins deserved. I admit that sin was a separation between us and God. It was an offense against God. And in the Old Testament, before Jesus died, sin was magnified through the law and punished severely to show us how deadly sin was. It was literally to drive us through fear away from sin and towards God. But in the New Testament, it reveals in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, that whoever fears is not made perfect in love. Fear has torment. And in the New Testament, God doesn't use fear to drive people towards him. He uses love. He stretched out his hands like this, and he died and bore our sins. And if people would ever talk about how good God is and all of the things that he's paid, it would draw people to him. Honey will draw more flies than vinegar ever will. If we were telling about the goodness of God and talking about how he bore our sins, it would change people. And so the Old Testament said, yes, your, your iniquities have separated between you and your God. But in the New Testament, it says that he was reconciling us unto himself, not imputing our trespasses unto us. What part of not imputing our trespasses unto us do we not understand? Look at another passage. I'm going to come back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 someday. But over here in Hebrews, look at this passage of Scripture. It's talking about the new covenant. And in Hebrews chapter 8, it goes back and, and quotes from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, where Jeremiah prophesied that there was going to be a new covenant, that the old covenant, which held people's sins against them and brought God's wrath and punishment upon them, was going to be done away with and God was going to make a new covenant. And he quotes those verses in uh, Hebrews chapter 8 and beginning with verse 8. And here is part of what he said in verse 12, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. You know what? Some people, I can't believe that because they've been steeped in the old covenant where God did hold people's sins. He imputed your sins unto you in the old covenant. 
You know, I've got a teaching out there entitled The True Nature of God. And I'm, I'm just saying a lot of things here that if this is new to you, you may be questioning this, but I could back every bit of it up uh, if I just went through all of these scriptures. Romans chapter 5, verse 13 talks about for the first 2,000 years after Adam and Eve's sins, God did not impute people's sins unto them. But then the law came and he did impute their sins unto him. But now the law has been replaced with the new covenant and God is in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing our trespasses unto us. Or as this says, he is merciful to your unrighteousness and your sins and iniquities he will remember no more. This is diametrically opposed to the message that the average church is preaching. They are preaching that if you sin, God won't answer your prayers. God is angry with you. God is going to judge you. God is going to punish you. You know, I started to mention this earlier and I got sidetracked, but in the church that I grew up in, one of their favorite statements was that if you don't pay your tithes, God will take it out in doctor bills. And what they meant by that was that you either fork over 10% or God's going to put you in the hospital and take 10% from you. And you know what? They got people to be able to pay their tithes with that. Because even a lost man understands fear. Even a lost man understands punishment. And you can motivate people who aren't even born again to give by telling them how sorry they are and that they're cursed with the curse if you don't die. But that's representing the Godfather, not God the Father. It's like somebody coming along and saying, hi, my name's Guido. And there's been a lot of arson around here, a lot of broken windows, a lot of bad things happening, people getting their kneecaps broken. But if you will give me 10%, I'll protect you. And of course, it's Guido that's doing all of this stuff, amen. You either pay up, it's hush money, it's protection money, or he's gonna get you. Well, in a sense, that's the way that people are representing God as the Godfather. But he is God the Father. And he is not sitting here and punishing you and judging you. God is not going to put you in the hospital and take the doctor bills, you know, as tithe. That's not the way that God is. And yet this is the way that religion has represented him. I've had people come in my prayer lines by the thousands, probably tens of thousands, who have said something like, why hasn't God healed me? Because I go to church and I pay my tithes. And I read the Bible and I'm a good person and I do this, this, and this. How come God hasn't healed me? When a person says that, you've shown me why God hadn't healed you. Because you did not point to what Jesus did for you. You pointed to what you did for Jesus. And you think you can earn the goodness of God. But I'm telling you, the only way God relates to anybody in here is by grace through faith. There's not a person in here that deserves God's blessing and deserves God's power operating in your life. Nobody in here deserves healing. Nobody deserves any of these things. I've lived holier than most of you, and I'm not saying this to brag on myself. I'm just telling you that I got born again when I was eight years old. 
I've sought God my whole life. I've never said a word of profanity. I've never taken a drink of liquor. I've never smoked a cigarette in my whole life. Some of you are thinking, man. I've never tasted coffee. Never have. Some of you are thinking, coffee? Are you saying coffee's like booze? No, you got scripture to stand on for drinking coffee. Did you know that? Mark 16, 18 says, you can drink any deadly thing and it shall not harm you, amen. <laughs> I'm not against coffee. I'm just saying I've lived a holy life, but who wants to be the best sinner that ever went to hell? I've sinned and come short of the glory of God. I cannot come to God and say, God, I deserve, look what I've been doing. I've been traveling. I'm ministering the word. I'm praying. I'm doing this. If I come before God based on my goodness, I get rejected because God doesn't grade on a curve. It's not like, well, nobody's perfect, but you just got to be in the top 10%. If you do better than somebody else, then God will accept you. No, you either have to be perfect or if you make 99.9, you have to have a Savior. Jesus is our Savior. You know what really sets Christianity apart from every other religion on the planet is that we are the only religion that has a Savior. Man, that's awesome. Muslims don't have a Savior. It's all based on their actions. They got to go out and have a jihad and kill the infidels and do something. And it's all based on their holiness and the things that they do. The Hindus, the Buddhists, the, you know, any religion you want to talk about, all of it, they have standards that you have to adhere to. And it's basically this concept that if you live holy enough and if you do good enough, if your good outweighs your bad, then you'll be accepted by God. That is not the message of the Bible. And to counter that kind of thinking, that's why God gave the law. God gave the law to people who thought, I'm pretty good. And I'm really a nice person and I believe God's gonna have to accept me because my good outweighs my bad. God thought, you thought you're good? Let me show you what I created man to be. And he gave a standard of holiness that nobody can keep. The law was never given for you to keep. It was given to show you how impossible of being perfect you were so that you would despair of self-salvation and it would just knock you to your face. So the only way you could look is up and say, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That was why God gave that. It was like if somebody walked into this auditorium tonight and had a machine gun and said, I'm going to kill all of you. The only way you can escape is if you can jump high enough. Well, some of you might be able to jump higher than the others and you think, oh man, this is great because I can really jump. <laughs> Let's say we had Michael Jordan in here and man, you know, this guy, he, he says, I'm going to make it for sure. But then he says, you got to jump high enough to touch the ceiling. You know what? We're all dead. <laughs> you might be able to jump higher than somebody else. Maybe somebody else is a couch potato and can barely get off the ground. But it, if that's the standard... 
then we have to all beg for mercy. We, none of us can get it on our own. This is what God did. People were thinking, I'm pretty good and God is going to accept me because my good outweighs my bad. And God took away that deception by saying, you think you're good enough? Here's my standard. And he says, thou shalt not. And he gave such a standard of perfection that the purpose of the law was to kill. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. To condemn. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9. Romans chapter 3, verse 19, it was to shut your mouth and to make you guilty before God, to make you condemned before God. Romans chapter 7, it made sin come alive. It made concupiscence just arise on the inside of you. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 says, the strength of sin is the law. Why would God give something that strengthens sin instead of us against sin? It was because sin had already beaten us and we didn't know it. We were comparing ourselves among ourselves and thinking, I'm pretty good because I don't dip or cuss or chew or go with those that do, praise God. And so we thought, I'm a pretty good person. And so God says, you think you're good. Let me show you what I intended to be perfect. And the purpose of the law was to condemn you, to make you fearful of God's wrath and judgment. And it had a purpose to get you out of your self-righteousness so that you would quit trusting in your own goodness and in your own holiness. But once you come to that place and then you cry out to God, you receive the salvation that Jesus purchased. Now you do not need to know all of your sin and all of your failures and you do not need to be condemned and beaten down. And that's what the purpose of the law was. And sad to say, the modern day New Testament church is still preaching the law and telling people that God's angry at you. I was in Toledo, Ohio, and a man got up right before I preached, and he gave a prophecy, quote-unquote prophecy, and he says, Thus saith the Lord, I am angry at you. I am upset with you. And he just blasted the people. And then I got up and I said, That was not of God. And brothers and sisters, many of our churches today are not of God. They are preaching that God is angry. They're telling you that you, if you don't study the word and if you don't do this, God won't answer your prayer. And I'm telling you, that is imputing your sin unto you. That is still holding you accountable for your sin. But back in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God reconciled us unto himself. And here's the way he did it. He didn't impute our sin unto us. He imputed it to Jesus. He punished Jesus for my sin. He's not mad at me. Somebody says, well, you sorry thing, and you, you just don't think I understand how bad sin is. I probably hate sin worse than most of you. I've lived a holier life than most of you have ever thought about. I do not, I am not making light of sin but I believe that people who say that if you go out and sin, God won't answer your prayer. God won't move in your life. God won't anoint you. God won't use you. People who say that are making light of Jesus' atonement. They're thinking it didn't cover everything. That he only paid like a down payment. And I have to make the monthly installments. I've got to maintain this thing on my own holiness. And I'm telling you, that's not true. Jesus paid it all. And he paid for all of our sins. 
Jesus paid for our sins, past, present, and future. Now, there are some people that will preach grace when it comes to being the initial born-again experience. They will sing the song, Just As I Am, without one plea. And they come and they, they tell a person who's a, a, an adulterer, a murderer, a liar, a thief. It doesn't matter. Jesus paid it all. And they will extend mercy and people will put faith in what Jesus did to get born again. But then as soon as they get born again... That same church will tell them now, you, if you want God to bless you, you're going to have to do this and do this. And they start laying down the laws. And if you don't conform to all of the laws, then God, you can't expect God to move in your life. And that's not true. Colossians chapter 2 verse 6 says, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. That means the way you receive salvation is the same way that you continue to walk in it. If you got saved by putting faith in what Jesus did, then that's the way that you maintain everything. That's the way you get healed. That's the way you get prospered. That's the way you have the anointing of God flow. That's the way you feel the love of God. You don't earn it. You didn't earn salvation. You can't earn healing, deliverance, prosperity, joy, peace. You just have to receive it as a gift. You know, if a drunk came in to the average church, they would tell the drunk that God loves you, God wants to save you, He wants to change your life, and if He says, oh, He, he couldn't save me because I'm a drunk. You don't know what I've done. You don't know how I've destroyed my family. You don't know the things that I've done. The average, if they were true Christians, if they had been born again, they would extend mercy towards a man as long as he's lost. And they would tell him about the goodness of God and lead him in a prayer and he would get saved. But let that man get saved and come back next Sunday drunk again. <laughs> and the very people who would tell him about God's love if he was lost would come to him if he was a born again Christian and saying, the wrath of God's on you. God will not bless you. God's gonna get you. God's gonna give you cirrhosis of the liver. God's gonna cause problems. If I really believed that, I'd tell the guy to stay lost so God could love him. Some of you are looking at me like, so you're encouraging alcoholism and you're just saying it doesn't. No, you're stupid if you're a drunk. But God loves you, stupid. God's not mad at you. And I'm telling you, telling a drunk about the goodness of God and how much God loves him, that puts value on his life. That gives him a feeling of worth, which is what drives a, a lack of a feeling of worth and feeling of failure is what drives so many people towards this. Why would anybody go get drunk, spend money, ruin their health, lose their job, lose their family, experience shame. Why would you do that unless you're miserable? I've never done it, but I've dealt with lots of drunks. I've dealt with lots of people on dope. Man, every time you take a shot of dope, you know, with a needle and you're sharing a needle, it's like playing Russian roulette. You can get these diseases. 
You can kill yourself. You're, you do stupid things when you're high. It costs lots of money. Why do people do that? There's a reason they call that dope. <laughs> it's dumb to the second power. Dumb, dumb. Why do people do that? Any person who goes and gets drunk, who does dope, is saying that my life is so bad, so miserable, that this little brief period of time where I just numb myself to all of these feelings and emotions is worth the money, worth the risk to my health, worth, worth the hurt and pain it's going to cause me and my family. You are so miserable that you'll do anything for just a few hours respite. You're miserable. Man, if a person understood how much God loved them, and if they ever started having the joy of the Lord and the feeling of God's love and acceptance, you would never have to have an escape like, like drugs or alcohol. Telling people about the goodness of God does not cause people to go live in sin. It draws them out of sin. I serve God because I love God. I got born again when I was eight years old and I was taught the wrath of God and the punishment and I served God out of fear. I used to have a dream when I was seven, eight years old that I had smoked a cigarette and I got caught and they turned me into the police and the police turned me over to my mother and, my, and then I woke up in hell, burning in hell because I had smoked a cigarette. I know some of you think, boy, you were weird. And I was. That's what religion will do to you. I used to see a word of profanity scribbled on a bathroom stall and I would repent for two weeks. And I didn't write it. I just saw it. That word came into my head and I would feel guilty. That's what the law does to you. And so I served God out of fear for 10 years from, from eight until 18. But then God showed up and I was born again. If I would have died, I'd have gone to heaven. But I didn't understand God's love. I didn't understand the grace of God. I kept thinking that I had to do something. My dad was in a coma for a number of weeks before he died when I was 11 years old. He died just after I was 12. And I fasted and I prayed and I did all of these things trying to be worthy for God to answer my prayer. I told him if he would heal my dad, I'd do anything. I'd do, I used to barter with him and tell him all of these things. And when my dad died, I thought it was because I wasn't good enough. I wasn't holy enough. My prayers weren't worthy of it. And I lived that way for 10 years. And then God showed up and just showed me that he loved me completely independent of any worth on my part. I had become a religious Pharisee. And because I was living holier than anybody I knew, I was living holier than the pastors of the church. I was living holier than anybody I knew. And I thought I was really awesome. And I was a modern day Pharisee and God showed up and I hadn't got the words to describe this, but in just a moment's time like that, he just pulled back a veil and he showed me my sin. And it wasn't the big sins of adultery and lying and stealing and things like that. But you know, the sin of self-righteousness, I believe, is the worst sin of all. 
I believe that self-righteousness and thinking that I'm holy and God owes me something is worse than homosexuality, adultery, than anything. Because that is a slap in the face of Jesus. Instead of putting your faith in him, my faith was in myself. And I thought I was awesome. And God just pulled back the curtain and I saw myself in comparison to God's standard of perfection. And I, I don't, it wasn't something that was taught me. It was just intuitive. God revealed it to me and I saw myself as absolutely ungodly. You know, the Bible talks about that not only is murder wrong, but if you hate your brother, you're guilty of murder. Not only is adultery wrong, but if you lust, you're guilty of, of adultery. God dealt with me on my thoughts, my attitudes of the heart, and in front of the pastor and the, uh, all of the leaders of the church and all of my friends in a prayer meeting, I just turned myself inside out and started confessing every sin not these sins outwardly of things, but my lust, my anger, my bitterness, my pride, my arrogance, what I thought about people, what I'd said about people. I turned myself inside out. And some of you will think I'm exaggerating, but this is the absolute truth that the doctrine that I was taught was that God's the one that killed my dad. That's what the pastor of the church told me, that God needed your dad in heaven and that God judged people. And when I saw how vile I was, I expected God to kill me. I really did. That's not an exaggeration. I thought I was going to die that night. And uh, before, before he killed me, I was going to confess everything I could think of and get it all out of the way so that maybe I'd go to heaven instead of to hell. Amen. And I spent an hour and a half confessing how sorry and ungodly I was and saying, God, I'm sorry. I confessed things that I didn't even know were wrong until I was in the presence of God like that and saw holiness and pure perfection. And after an hour and a half, I didn't have anything left to say. I had confessed everything I had or ever would do. And I just was laying in a puddle of tears on the floor waiting on God to kill me. And to my surprise, instead, the love of God just flowed over me. For four and a half months, I was caught up in the presence of God. And I learned that God's love was not something that could be earned. It couldn't be bought. It was when I finally quit trusting in my holiness and my goodness that I finally experienced what I had been seeking all of that time. And I'm telling you, there's lots of people in here that you may have little glimpses of the grace of God. But as a whole, we live under this sin consciousness and under this thinking that God is imputing our sins unto us and that if we do something wrong, we don't deserve the blessing of God. And it's not God who's not giving and not releasing its power. It's us who won't let him bless us because we don't feel worthy. Our unworthiness, our sin consciousness is what is stopping the flow of God in our life. It's not our sin. Sin has been paid for. Again, I am not saying that you should go live in sin because if you live in sin, you give Satan inroad into your life and Satan is only coming to steal, kill, and destroy. 
So you ought to live as holy as you can so that Satan won't have an inroad. But I'm saying God doesn't deal with you based on your sin or lack thereof. If you live holy, God doesn't love you more. If you live unholy, God doesn't love you less. But if you live unholy, you will love God less because Satan will blind you and harden your heart and put hindrances between you and God. It's not God who's putting them there. It's not God that withdraws his power. It's you that turn your back on God when you go live in sin and you harden your heart towards God. So don't live in sin. I am not encouraging sin, but I'm saying God loves you in spite of your sin. He doesn't love you more or less based on your action. He loves you based on what Jesus did for you. And back in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, some of you thought I forgot this, but in verse 20 it says, Now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. God has already reconciled you to himself. God has already paid your sin debt. God is not mad. God is not upset. He's not even in a bad mood. God loves you. God loves you more than you ever thought about. God has reconciled himself to you. Now I'm beseeching you in Christ's stead. Reconcile yourself unto God. Get rid of this sin consciousness. Come into the new covenant and out of the old covenant and accept the fact that God has made you a brand new person, not because of what you did, but what was done for you. It's not God that we need to appease. We need to get rid of our own sin consciousness, our own condemnation. You have to purge your conscience from dead works so, so that you can serve the living God. Hebrews chapter 9. And in verse 21, For he, God, hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God the Father made Jesus to become sin. He didn't just take a little portion of sin and put it on Jesus. He made Jesus sin. Jesus became a sinner, not his sin. Jesus was perfect. Jesus never sinned. He was holy and he was without sin. But he became sin. He took the sin of the whole world upon himself. You know, in the Old Testament, there was a picture of this. When they offered a sacrifice, when they killed a sheep, or a bullock, or any of those. They, the priest had to lay their hands on the head of that sacrifice and lean on it. You know what that was symbolizing? A transferal of all of your sins and everything onto this animal. You put it onto that animal. Jesus took the sin of the entire human race. Everything that has ever happened or ever will happen. And some of you are thinking, how could God forgive a sin before you commit it? Well, you better pray that he can because he only died one time 2,000 years ago before you and I had ever committed a sin. If God can't forgive sins before you commit them, then you can't be forgiven. God can do it. I don't know how he does it, but he does it honest. He forgave all of the sins. Every sin that you have or ever will commit has already been paid for. And it was placed upon Jesus. 
You know, another thing over here in Isaiah chapter 53, I'm not going to take time to turn over and read it, but it says that he will see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. He was prophesying about Jesus, that he will see the travail of his soul. In the Old Testament, when you brought an animal to be sacrificed for your sins, the priest had to examine the sacrifice to see if it was without blemish, if it was perfect. You couldn't offer a defiled sacrifice. It had to be perfect because it represented Jesus. And the priest would look at the animal. They didn't examine the person. They didn't come and say, all right, have you been holy? Have you been studying the word? Have you gone to church? Have you paid your tithes? Have you been doing everything right? The very fact that you were bringing a sacrifice was a confession that, you know what, I blew it. (laughs) I need mercy. And the priest examined the sacrifice. They didn't examine the one who the sacrifice was for. Likewise, God isn't looking at you and your actions. He's looking at Jesus and Jesus was perfect and Jesus paid for your sin and God is satisfied when he sees the travail of his soul. Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The reason, that was a quotation from Psalms chapter 22. And the very next verse gives you the answer. It says, but thou art holy, O God, that inhabits the praises of Israel. The reason God the Father forsook Jesus is because he became sin. He became unholy and God turned away from Jesus the way that we deserved to be turned away from. God forsook his own son. God put your sin and my sin in the flesh of Jesus and Jesus bore our punishment and now we are supposed to be free from a sin consciousness. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 2. We should have no more conscience of sin. And yet the average Christian, every time they come before God, oh God, we come before you so humbly today. We don't deserve any of your favor. Oh God, I've sinned. Oh, and you just feel like you got to mention all of your sins So maybe if you mention them, God won't. And you come in just belly aching and apologizing and stuff. Man, you ought to come in praising God for Jesus. Thank you, Father. Hebrews chapter four, verse 16. We have boldness to enter into the presence of God, into the very throne room of God in time of need. Not when you've done everything right, but when you're a mess. You can come before God boldly. And if an angel was to stand in your way and says, hey, you can't come before God. He's holy. What makes you worthy? You ought to respond by saying, man, the blood of Jesus is what made me holy. But if you would point to yourself and to something that you've done as being something that gains you access to God, then you would be rejected. Did you know that I said Christianity is the only religion that has a savior, but sadly, many Christians, quote unquote Christians, if they were to stand before God right now and there was a Muslim and a Hindu and a Buddhist and a, and you know, whatever else, whoever, atheist, anybody, if they were standing before God and if he says, what makes you worthy? Did you know many Christians would start pointing to, well, I did good. 
I went to church. I was a good person. I was faithful to my wife. I never did cheat. I did this, this, and this. If you answer any of those things, you would go straight to hell because all of sin and come short of the glory of God. Nobody's good is going to outweigh their bad. God doesn't grade on a curve. You've got to make a hundred or you fail. The only answer that will gain anybody access to God is if somebody says, what makes you worthy is for you to say, the only thing I've got going for me is I've got a Savior, Jesus. I put faith in Jesus. Examine the lamb. Look at the sacrifice. Don't look at me. You know, if there's anybody in here who if, as I was giving this illustration, if you would have said, you would have pointed to something good that you've done. You would have pointed to all of your goodness. You would have said, I'm not like these other people over here. I fast twice of the week. I pay tithes of mint, anise, and cumin. I'm not like this old publican over here. That's the Pharisee syndrome. If there's any of you that would have pointed to your own goodness, then you know what? Your faith isn't in Jesus. Your faith is in yourself. And this is why Satan condemns you so much. This is why you aren't seeing the fullness of God manifest in your life because Satan is accusing you and your own conscience knows that you are not the person that you're supposed to be. And so you're never going to have boldness and confidence. But I tell you, when you quit looking at yourself and you start saying, Father, thank you for Jesus. By his stripes I was healed, not by my stripes. It changes everything. The Bible says, agree with your adversary quickly while you're in the way. And one of the ways I apply that is when the devil comes and says, you aren't worthy. What makes you think God would use you? What makes you think God would answer your prayers? Instead of trying to argue with him and say, hey, I've been fasting more. I've prayed more than I've ever prayed. I read the Bible 10 hours today. The moment you do that, I don't care how holy you are, you are never going to be perfect. Satan has got you the moment you start basing God's goodness on your goodness. Amen. The only way to respond is to just agree with your adversary and say, you got me. I'm not worthy. I think I'll just pray in the name of Jesus. I'll get it through who Jesus is. Amen. I'm going to walk in the love of God, not because I deserve it, but because God is good. Amen. It's not me that's lovely. It's God who is love. And you start praising God for who he is. And when the devil condemns you and you do make mistakes and you do things wrong, and when you do something wrong, if you understand the gospel, then instead of getting condemned, you start thinking, oh God, this is so awesome that you love me in spite of how sorry I am. God, I'm disappointed with myself and other people are disappointed and I made a mess of things and yet you still love me just as if I'd never sinned. And man, you go to praising God. And I'll speak to my critics who sit there and say, well, you're encouraging people to sin. Man, the love of God will cause you to live holier accidentally than you ever lived on purpose before. If you can understand what I'm talking about and if you receive this great love, you'll give up anything. You'd give up bubble gum if you thought it would please God. 
God, is there something I can give up for you? God, is there something I can do? I love you so much. Love will cause you to serve God more than you've ever served him out of fear. People say, you're just giving people a license to sin. Well, they've been sinning pretty good without a license, amen. I'm not giving you a license to sin. I'm setting you free from the guilt and the condemnation that comes from sin. There is no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. I tell you, brothers and sisters, this is good news. It's better news than any of us understand. None of us fully understand how good God is. When we get to heaven and get our full revelation of this, we are going to be kicking ourselves for how we lived under guilt and condemnation when the truth was we had been freed and we just didn't walk in that freedom. Praise God. I believe that the things I've shared tonight are going to help set some of you free. Amen. Praise God. If you're one of those who would have pointed to some good on your own as the basis of why God would accept you, then you need to be born again. Your faith isn't in a Savior, it's in yourself. And I tell you, there are going to be millions, maybe billions of quote-unquote Christians that go to hell because they did not trust in a Savior. They might have even used the terminology, but they didn't put their faith in Jesus. Their faith was in themselves. You have to come to the end of yourself and make Jesus your Lord and receive salvation. If you've never done that, you need to do that tonight. You, you may be a good person. You might be a better person than I am. You might have lived a holier life than I am, but have, but who wants to be the best sinner that ever went to hell? If you sin, you need a Savior and you need to quit trusting in yourself and put faith in a Savior. So if you've never done that, I want to give you an opportunity tonight to make Jesus your Lord. The Bible says real simply, Romans 10, 9, that if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, that's more than just mouthing the words. You've got to make Him Lord. That doesn't mean that you're never going to make a mistake because you can't live that. You will fall short, but you have to be willing for Him to be your Lord. You have to trust Him, commit your life to Him. If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's the promise of Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you've never done that tonight, I don't care if you've joined a church, I don't care if you were christened when you were a child, it doesn't matter what you've done. If you've not made Jesus your Lord and confessed it with your mouth and believed it with your heart, you need to do that tonight. And if you have been born again, and if you know that your life has changed, but if you don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you need that. And I know that we've got people from all different backgrounds here, and I haven't got time tonight to explain this totally, but I'm telling you that the baptism of the Holy Spirit changed my life. I was born again for 10 years before I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the baptism of the Holy Spirit, sometimes when you use the word baptism, people think of water and they think you're talking about being baptized in water. This is talking about something different. Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came upon them, they spoke with tongues. 
Speaking in tongues is a part of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I know some of you are thinking, oh man, they don't believe that in my church. That's the reason I'm not in your church. That's the reason we had to rent an auditorium. Somebody said, well, I'm not sure about all that stuff. Well, I am. I'm telling you, it changed my life. Some of you are saying, are you saying that we have to have the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues to go to heaven? No, you can go to heaven without the Holy Spirit and you can get there quicker because you aren't going to have any power. Jesus said you receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. I'm telling you, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and this gift of speaking in tongues, there's other things besides just speaking in tongues, but speaking in tongues is one of the things that happened immediately in the book of Acts every time people receive the Holy Spirit. And I tell you, it's a life-changing experience. When you speak in tongues, it just, it's like flipping a switch. It's like turning on the power of God. The Bible says you build yourself up. In Isaiah chapter, uh, I think it's 28, it says that this is the rest wherewith you may cause the weary to rest with stammering lips and another tongue. And that was quoted in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and applied to speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues gives you rest. It encourages you. It takes away stress. Man, it's awesome. Man, if you drive in New York City, you need to speak in tongues, amen. You need this gift. Hallelujah. Praise God. So is there anybody in here who needs one or both of those? Either you need to make Jesus your Lord or if you've already done that, you need to receive this baptism of the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues. If that's you, I'd like you to raise your hand. I want to pray with you and help you to receive. Just be bold and raise your hand right now. Praise the Lord. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, Jesus. You know, some of you are thinking, what are you going to do? I'm going to ask you if you raised your hand or if you were supposed to raise your hand to get up, come down here, and we want to pray with you. And I'm going to give you a free book that will explain these two experiences, being born again in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So if you raised your hand, just come right down here and stand and we wanna pray with you and help you to receive. Hallelujah. Crowd in down here at the front, amen. God bless you. Come down here at the front, thanks. Man, isn't this awesome? Man, it's going to change your life. No, let me minister to these folks. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Man, isn't this awesome? Kind of get friendly with the people in front of you. We're going to need some room to get everybody in here. Praise the Lord. 
You know, if you can't get all the way down to the front, you can stand there in the aisle. But I just wanted you to do something. I wanted you to move and say that I'm believing God for something. So it's important for you to come forward. We have some room a little bit over here on the side. But... All right, let me say this. Before I can pray with you to receive this baptism of the Holy Spirit in speaking tongues, you first of all have to make Jesus your Lord. You must be born again. The Bible says Jesus is the one who fills people with the Holy Spirit. So you've got to receive the giver before you receive the gift. So is there anybody down here who as I was preaching tonight, you would have looked to yourself and you thought your good was going to outweigh your bad. And tonight you want to say, I'm quitting trusting in myself. I want to make Jesus my Savior. I want to make Him Lord. If you've never done that, I want you to raise your hand so I can see who you are. And I'm going to pray with you and help you to receive. Praise God. A lot of people. Thank you, Jesus. Anybody else down here? Praise God. We've got people in the aisles too. You know, again, there's a lot of religious people who think this is an offense to them because they say, well, I've believed in God my whole life. The Bible says, you believe in one God, you do well. The devils also believe and tremble. But won't you know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead. You've got to do more than just believe there's a God. The devil believes there's a God, but the devil has never submitted his life to his lordship. He's never turned his life over and said, I want you to control my life. So if, even if you've believed in, the, in a God, you need to do what the devil hasn't done. You need to commit your life to him. Is there anybody else who did not raise your hand who now you need to pray with me? I'm going to lead you in a prayer and you're going to be born again. Praise God. Here's some others. All right, what I'm going to do, I quoted that scripture, Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And I'm going to lead you in a prayer. You don't have to say the exact words that I say, but you have to say something similar to this. And so what I would like to do is just pray this prayer and have you repeat after me. And I'd like to ask everybody in here to repeat after me so that they won't feel like we're just listening to them. I'd like everybody to say this prayer. And if you will say this prayer and mean it from your heart, you'll be born again. Isn't that awesome? Jesus has already paid for your sin. He's not imputing sin unto you now. It's not a matter of will he forgive you. He's already done it. Will you make him your Lord? Will you receive this forgiveness? And so I want you to pray after me. Let's everybody just say this. Say, Father, Father I'm sorry for my sin. I believe Jesus died to forgive my sin. And I receive that forgiveness. Jesus, I make you my Lord. I believe that you are alive. That you now live in me. I am saved. I am forgiven. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You believe that? Awesome. Awesome, awesome. You know, if you believe that, you just became a brand new person on the inside. 
On the outside, you still look the same. But in your heart, you're a brand new person. And the Bible says you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so that means that every person down here, you were created by God to be a dwelling place for His Holy Spirit. This means you don't have to beg Him and say, oh God, please come fill me. There are some people that teach that you got to get rid of all sin in your life to receive the Holy Spirit. He won't fill a dirty vessel. I want you to know God hadn't got any other kind of vessel to fill. (laughs) We're all in varying stages of imperfection. There is no sin, there is nothing in your life that is going to stop God from giving you the Holy Spirit. The only thing that could stop you is if you don't believe. And I'm trying to get you to believe. It says... It says, um, if you be an evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? All you've got to do is ask and believe. He, he doesn't require perfection. If you could get holy without the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't need the Holy Spirit. If you've got sin in your life, if you've got problems, you're a prime candidate for the power of the Holy Spirit. So I'm just going to lead you in a real simple prayer And we're going to open up the doors of our temple, the doors of our heart, and say, God, we want you to come in. We want the power of the Holy Spirit. And then I'm going to just speak over you and release the power of the Holy Spirit to come into your life. And after I do that, I want you to quit asking and take a step of faith and believe that God did what He promised He'd do. And I want you to believe that He gave you the Holy Spirit. Don't go by how you feel. When I received the Holy Spirit, I didn't feel anything, but I got the power of the Holy Spirit. I just did it by faith. And since then, I've had all kinds of feelings. Feelings aren't wrong, but you can't base your faith on a feeling. Whether you feel something or don't, doesn't matter. God said, if you ask, He'll give. So after I pray over you, I want you to start thanking God that He gave you the Holy Spirit. And at that time... I want you to put your hands in the air because the Bible says that when you lift up your hands, you bless the Lord. This blesses God. It's like when somebody sticks a gun in your back and you go, I surrender. (laughs) So we're going to pray. You're going to start praising God. And then I want those of us who have the baptism of the Holy Spirit and this ability to speak in tongues, I want all of us to start speaking in tongues, not real loudly so that you control the whole assembly, but just you know quietly so that these people won't feel like we're all listening to them. And as we start speaking in tongues, the Bible says when you speak in tongues, you are giving thanks to God in a heavenly language. It bypasses the doubt and the fear of your brain, and it comes straight out of your heart. And man, it's powerful. I've got a book I'm going to give all of you, but one last instruction, and then I'm going to pray. The number one thing that stops people from praying in tongues is the thought that God is going to force you to talk. He's going to take control of you, and it's going to come out uncontrollably. That's not what happens. The Bible says in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, that they spoke with tongues as the Spirit gave them the utterance or the inspiration. You have to do the talking. The Holy Spirit doesn't talk in tongues. He just inspires it. It's like when I spoke tonight. I believe that God spoke through me tonight. I believe it was directed by the Holy Spirit. (laughs) 
But if I would have stood up here and said, oh God, speak through me and then just open up my mouth and wait on God to make it talk, nothing would have been said. I spoke. That's why it came out in Texan. That's why it came out with my sense of humor. It was me talking, but it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's the way speaking in tongues is. You got to talk. And by faith, believe it's the Holy Spirit. And I've got a bunch of things in this book that will explain it in more detail. But if you're ready, you can do it right now. Okay? The Bible says believers will speak with new tongues. I want you to say, I'm a believer. And I will speak in tongues. Father, I thank you for all of these. Thank you for those that got born again tonight. And now we are all the temple of the Holy Spirit. In our heart, in our spirit, you created us to fill with your power. We want the power of the Holy Spirit. We want this gift of speaking in tongues and every other gift of the Holy Spirit. Father, we open up the doors of our heart and we welcome you to come into our life and fill us with your presence and power right now in the name of Jesus. I loose this power of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, I just loose you to fall through all of these people to come into our lives and to fill us right now. Man, right here, I believe this is the Holy Spirit right now moving and touching you. Right here is the anointing of the Holy Spirit coming into your life. All of you right now in Jesus' name. Father, we thank you. Let's put those hands in the air and start thanking God that he gave you the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father, that I am filled with your Holy Spirit right now. Thank you that your promise is true. I am God-possessed. I am filled with your power from this time forth in the mighty name of Jesus. Now, those of you who know how to speak in tongues, let's just worship the Lord and speak in tongues. And as we speak in tongues... You join in with us, okay? Just begin to speak. You know, typically I wouldn't speak in tongues because the Bible says you're supposed to have an interpreter. But just for your benefit here, I'm going to pray in tongues. If you don't know what to say, you can try and say what I'm saying, but it'll come out differently. Your tongue will be unique to you. It won't be the same as mine. But if you start trying to say what I'm saying and it comes out differently, don't quit. Just keep talking. Amen? Just keep talking. Let's flow in the Holy Spirit right now. Hallelujah. You can't talk in tongues with your mouth closed. You got to open your mouth and talk. Man, that's awesome. Lots of people are speaking in tongues down here. You don't understand what you're saying, but you're bypassing your brain and you're talking to God out of your heart. You're bypassing all of your confusion and your doubt. The Holy Spirit is praying through you. Just keep speaking right now. Keep talking. That's it. Just be bold. Talk right now. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. 
Man, praise God. Many, many, many of these are speaking in tongues. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Let me have your attention here for a minute. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I, there, I want to say a couple of things. I'm going to be giving each one of you a book that will explain this. You know, even if you felt something and if you felt like God really touched you tonight, it is much, much more than what you understand. You've got to understand what's going on before you can get the full benefit of this. Let me also say that if you didn't speak in tongues, I still believe God gave you the Holy Spirit because He promised that He would. But you need to continue and speak in tongues because that is an expression. It's, a, it's like faith without works is dead. You need to do it and it'll release this power of God in your life. But when I first asked for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I didn't speak in tongues for three and a half years. But that's because I was a Baptist. And I had been told that this was of the devil. And I was so fearful that I was going to be doing something wrong that that fear and unbelief hindered me. But I kept studying until I finally got it. And now I speak in tongues all of the time. And you can do it too. Amen. So Larry, how are we going to give out these books? Where are the books? Okay, they're on both sides. If you would go back to your seat this way, we've got books. I think we have 400 and something books and hopefully that'll be enough to give everybody. So we've got them on both sides. As you go back, just have, they'll give you one of, your, one of these books and I encourage you to take it and please read it because it's very important that you understand what's happening to you. This is more than just a prayer. It's more than just one thing. This will change your life. It'll make a big difference. I believe you're going to be stronger than horseradish. Amen. Praise God. You can go back to your seat. Let's give the Lord a praise offering for all of these. You know, on the day of Pentecost... There was only 120 people in the upper room that received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues. And within a short period of time, they had 3,000 get saved and baptized. And then the next week they had 5,000. And all of this started with 120 people. Man, we have more than that right here. And this could change New York. I believe this will make a big, big difference. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. You know, I'm going to have our prayer ministers come down here as this group clears out. We brought these prayer ministers with us and these are people that have been through a training. I forget exactly how much, but it was, it was weeks, months of training. They've prayed with people. They've, they've seen things like Tourette's syndrome heal. They've had people come out of wheelchairs. These are people that this is what they do is pray for people and they see great miracles happen. Al and Angie Burke right here, Al was healed in his back. I mean, was supposed to be possibly never walk again. And then after they saw he was going to walk, it was going to be terrible. Here he is healed and they see great miracles happen. And um, 
Anyway, the reason I'm mentioning this is because I do not have the ability to pray for every single person here tonight. And you know what? I don't need to. My anointing that God has given me is to teach the Word of God. And when I pray for a person, I just pray for a person like any believer can pray for a person. It's just a prayer of faith. I don't have a gift of healing as such. And these people here have been taught how to pray and do this. And I want to offer them to you that if any of you need healing for anything in your body, or it doesn't have to only be healing, if you need prayer or ministry of some other kind, you can come down here and let one of our prayer ministers pray for you. And we are going to believe God for miracles. Amen. I believe awesome, awesome things are going to happen. We hope your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. It's the faithful support of people just like you who make this ministry possible. We invite you to prayerfully consider becoming a partner with Andrew Womack Ministries. You can call our helpline at 719-635-1111. Or you can write us at Post Office Box 3333, Colorado Springs, Colorado 80934. Remember, you can always listen to Andrew's messages at awmi.net. Until next time, we pray that you'll reach out by faith and receive everything that's yours through God's grace.